Welcome to the Vegan Family Kitchen podcast. My name is Brigitte Jem, and I am so excited to have today a wonderful guest that is also from Vancouver, BC, where I am. Her name is Deborah McNamara, and she is a counselor who specializes and is most interested in the relationship between food and our connections with each other, food and attachment, and how the meals we eat are really not just about the stuff we put in our mouths. Deborah, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Bridget. I am really thrilled that you're here. So as I was saying, you are a counselor, also an educator, a mother. That's an important credential if you're going to write on this topic. And the author of two books. Your first book is Rest, Play, Grow, Making Sense of Preschoolers. Can anybody make sense of preschoolers? I don't know. And her, uh, I, I should read that one, though thankfully I'm past that stage. And your newer book that we're going to talk about today that was just published in, I think, September 2023 is called Nourished Connection, Food and Caring for Our Kids. And I'm sure a lot of that applies to not just caring for our kids, but anyone really that we have the privilege, I will put it that way, to cook for. She is on faculty at the Newfeld Institute. She also supports adults in making sense of kids of all ages in all sorts of ways. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to open by talking about how in your book, Nourished, you open up by talking about how we have reduced food, really, to its micro parts. We have reduced it in a very scientific way to um, its parts, you know, the nutrients that are in it, and really just to the stuff, the, the act of eating. Uh, but in fact, food is far more complex and has been entangled in this mesh and a big part of this mesh of relationships and attachment for always since the dawn of human times and I would like you to start by telling me more about how this uh, became so clear and so visible to you how you made this discovery if we can put it that way mm -hmm. thank you uh, it, I discovered it actually as a mother to be honest with you with my own struggles with my daughter who was about three uh, with picky eating and then going to my postdoc supervisor at the time where I was learning everything about relationship and human development through Gordon Neufeld. And I remember having this conversation with him and it became really clear to me that I was creating a relationship problem through my own frustration, resistance, lack of insight and understanding around how my daughter was supposed to become an eater. And I was pushing it. I was relying on behavioral types of approaches, you know, um, not respecting uh, the re relationship between us and its power in helping my daughter become an eater and a an healthy one and to follow and um, try the same things that I might like. I was making a mess. And so I realized when I went looking for answers that there weren't the kind of answers that were informed by development and attachment science. And so that began uh, what has been a 10-year journey of research and writing and talking about uh, this subject uh, in my private practice with clients, looking at that through the lens of their families and what's happening until I could finally put the pieces together and say, ah, this has come apart. That's the problem. It's not about behavior. It's not about learning to eat. Uh, it's actually about something much more significant. It's about our human connection. 
I don't mean to embarrass you um, because we're all, we've all been there, I'm sure, anyone with children and even with anyone who cooks for other people, I think we've all been there in one way or another. What mm -hmm. does it look like when we're, allow me this shortcut, when we're doing it wrong? What does it look like? Well, there's no one prescription for correctness or, or it, there's no one right way here. I don't want to give a prescription in that sense. But what was happening between my daughter and I is that there was resistance and opposition. I was trying to make her eat certain foods. She was not having it. Uh, she didn't like the taste of it. She was far more sensitive in her palate than I understood. But I was consumed with wanting to eat to eat a certain amount, to eat certain foods. And of course, when she resisted or she wouldn't, I would get frustrated. Um, I mean, I didn't yell at her or threaten her or any of that kind of stuff. I just basically was just, oh, just, you know, every mealtime became like, oh gosh, here we go again. The joy was being sucked out of me. Uh, you know, I didn't relish this. I took such great satisfaction in feeding my eldest um, it was a wonderful dance of relationship. You know, it was a time of enjoyment, but I came to oh, just not enjoy these time periods and then worry about it, become alarmed. Is she going to eat? What's she not going to eat? Why can't she eat this? Why can't I make sense of it? And she could sense my frustration. I even went so far to try to hide certain things in the food, you know, going down that road and she would spit it out. She was so her, her palate knew. I thought I'm not doing something right here. Uh, and I was all about attachment. I helped other parents with attachment. I was well seasoned in it as a researcher, as a teacher. And I thought I have missed something here. This dance is not working between us. And so those feelings that were created inside of me and her resistance, turning her head or throwing things on the floor or just that tension that would be between us. I thought I got to talk to my supervisor about this. I need to understand something here. I can't do this work and then not then have this unfold. It just, the, the conflict inside of me was so great. I hear you. <laughs> and something you, you, I don't think you mentioned, but another common uh, tactic that parents might use will be bribes in addition to hiding food. Um, you know, there's threats and then there's bribes, you know, the carrots and the stick. Um, those are all ways that I think make a lot of us feel yucky inside. You know, you're doing this, but you're like, that feels wrong. But what is it about food? Because you, you mentioned, you know, you, you were somebody that was already very aware of all those developmental psychology aspects. What is it about food that makes us go a little cuckoo? It's so close to survival. It is about survival in so many ways. It's so close. I mean, if you actually look through the lens of attachment and developmental science, you realize that actually it is human connection that is the source of survival, not food, as Maslow put it. Uh, food is secondary to that. Food was meant to be delivered inside the context of connection because people who are attached to you are more likely to want to keep you around, to share with you, to feed you, to sacrifice for you. So food was never meant to be the focus of survival, but it has become that. And I think that because food is visible and attachment and human connection is invisible, we focus on the things that we can see, that we can put words around, that are easily to, we can easily change and alter. Um, you know, I think it was Dave, uh, who was it, Michael Pollan, who said something like, you know, what we eat 
uh, is easy to fix. How we eat and how we become eaters is much more complex because it's about the social and the psychological. And so I think it's our alarm. It's our emotions around food because it is so close to survival. I think we judge ourselves uh, as parents on the outcomes that we see. Is our child eating well? What are they eating? The judgment that comes from that. There is so much judgment of parents as defined by the food they, they give their kids as if there was one prescription here that all people need to, to follow. Um, if that were true, we'd be eating all the same food and wouldn't have different cuisines and different, you know, geography and whatever. So there's been so much prescription and shame and alarm attached to food. And so I think it becomes a barometer through which we measure our success as parents when it's actually human connection that we should be looking at most of all this way. Food's important, but yeah. I feel that, correct me if I'm wrong, or I, I would love to hear your insight on this. I feel that there's a part of this that's also about control, fear mm -hmm. of losing control or desire to have control. And I see it in adults um, who who see food as the one thing they can control, right? Even for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, is there a bit of a control struggle going on with food there? It's a, it's a great question. It's very insightful. Uh, control, actually, you have to look at where that's driven from. That isn't just something we cognitively want to do. It's not always even in our best interest. It doesn't even make sense logically. Control is driven by alarm. The more alarmed we feel, the more we try to control circumstances, because the more we are in control, there is a sense of uh, false sense of safety that we can actually, uh, we are safe or we can keep other people safe. So what drives control is alarm uh, and not knowing uh, how to keep our loved ones safe or feeling that we must keep ourselves safe um, and um, that there's no one, to, no one's care to rest in. And so kids can take matters of food into their own hands and can become very controlling and demanding and commanding. But that's because they've, um, they're not resting in the care of their adults when it comes to their care. And it, it might not have anything to do with their adults. It can actually be something to do with the outside world. As we saw during COVID, the rates of uh, eating issues went through the roof. It's not just all about what happens in the home. It's also what's happening in the outside world, in schools, bullying in a context and a climate that uh, is very alarming from climate degradation to geopolitical instability, economic issues. So it's, it's this issue around food is where we play out our emotional and relational dynamics. That's the crux of it. So control is about alarm. What, tell me more. What is alarm? Alarm is a hardwired emotion in the brain. All mammal species have it. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It's meant to serve our survival. And what it's looking for is any source of separation because attachment is our greatest need. Separation is our greatest threat. So the emotions that do the work to, to preserve connection, to preserve our survival, there's three in particular. One is alarm, one is frustration, and one is incredible pursuit to get back whatever's been lost or you believe is essential for survival. So that pursuit, that hunger, um, you know, that can somehow be rampant sometimes, the frustration and aggression. Um, you know, how much of hangry is actually about just physiologically not having food? How much of hangry is actually emotional too, that someone didn't get there to feed us, that we're having to take care of ourselves? We often always go for the food and the physical, but it's not simply about it. It's intertwined with emotions. It's intertwined with our relationships. I'll do, I'll go on a tangent here for a moment because I don't want to drop this idea. With a friend recently, we were, 
reflecting on how, what makes us want to order takeout, right? And how you've just mentioned hangry, you know, coming home at the end of the day, feeling a combination of hunger and anger, hangry. And it could be, um, I always say, you know, I, I get this fantasy of getting those noodles right? <laughs> from, from a place that I like. And I know if I take a moment that they will be disappointing, right? And if I take the time to cook them myself at home with stuff I have, it will be so much more satisfying and more nourishing, right? Taking care of myself and my needs. And what is it that pushes us to when, and my, so my friend was saying this thought that somebody will cook for me, somebody will be taking care of me. Mm -hmm. And it seems to echo with what you were just saying, mm -hmm. feeling hangry that nobody's taking care of me. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. am, am I out in the far left field, you think? No, well, I'm out there with you then. Um, <laughs> nature's, nature's hardwiring, nature's way, her wisdom is essentially to put us into relationship with each other for the purpose of caretaking. That's what attachment is. We talk a lot about attachment, but it has a purpose and its purpose is caretaking. Is there care in the caretaking? You know, we say, oh, well, I'm taking care of this, taking care of this, but is there care in it? We can't always assume that that is the case. But no, this is nature's design for us is that we can rest in the care of others and others can rest in our care. It's called cascading care. We take care of someone, they take care of someone else, someone takes care of us. You know, with my husband and I, oftentimes, you know, with the, with the meals during the week, we just got into this rhythm. It wasn't something we even talked about where I would provide uh, generally for the week. Um, during later in the week, we'd have our one sacred takeout night of things that I couldn't make, like beautiful sushi. And, um, you know, we would, uh, you know, we would relish in our in our uh, dinner together uh, that someone had provided for us and our favorite things that we had, right? Um, but at the same time, um, you know, my husband on the weekends, he would pull out his uh, recipes and he would take care of us. And that was a beautiful dance, a beautiful rhythm in our week was that we both could um, find our way to take the lead and also be taken care of. But that isn't always the case. We don't always have someone who's going to step in. We don't always have someone who's taking the lead this way. But in the book, I did ask when I was writing uh, Nourished, I asked everybody, who is your favorite person to cook for you? And uh, I thought I might get favorite restaurants and takeout places. Not, not one out of the uh, 50 to 50 people I interviewed personally to another couple hundred online. And surveys? No, not one person. It was all a personal connection. So again, you know, it's just our relationships and food are meant to come together this way. I feel that just shifting the mindset, just talking about it, is mm -hmm. a really big step in improving this source of tension and conflict that we may have around meals. What else, though? How how can we dig ourselves out of this unpleasant situation that we've created for ourselves without without even really realizing what was going on? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first of all we have to be aware that there's something broken. Um, that we have to then take a 
step in the direction to become more conscious of what's been broken and to put things back together again. It's not as simple as sitting around a, a table or family meal together. Uh, it's not as simple as saying everything has to be made from scratch or, um, you know, that uh, has to look a particular way. There's actually something more fundamental here that needs to be repaired. And that is where the adult takes the lead for providing care for another person, uh, you know, and says, I will take care of you. Um, and to make sure that, that that caring has, you know, time and intention to put into it to whatever degree we can, that it has some good intentions so that we're thinking about that other person, their needs, what's significant to them, their tastes, um, that we take matters of their health into our hands. You know, how many times are we saying to children, you know, giving such explicit directions to children, if you don't do this, you're not taking care of your body. I don't know about you, but think about a six, seven, eight, ten-year-old being told, you have to take care of your body. This is your responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that that information isn't important, but there was a way that it was meant to be relayed, um, not so directly, explicitly in the things that we do, bringing our kids into our culture, bringing our kids into our ways, our mannerisms, our practices, and how we do food in our own home. Um, this was meant to be done through relationships. So everything... If we're going to make that that shift, I think we have to see that it has to come through the lens of relationship, our pushing, our instruction, our focus on outcomes is getting in the way. So how do we take the lead? How do we take the lead? And sometimes we may have complex eating issues or allergies or things that have to be addressed. If we don't take the lead, the more alarmed our children will be about food because food isn't necessarily a safe bet for them all the time, right? They can have stomachs that don't react well to things. Who takes the lead on the food for that child and puts them to rest around something that must be life-giving and nourishing? So it really comes back down to that at the end of the day. How do we invite our kids or our loved ones to rest in our care and provide generously for them? What does it look like when oh. we... I have, two, I have two levels to this question. I have, on the one hand, I'm curious about how we can interrupt the the crisis situation you know or the, the going back to your story of with your own daughter you know when you're in one of those spirals how do you stop it and how can you move forward knowing that it's a pretty big mountain to climb i mean i think a lot of us come from from a good place and a good heart but we really have to unlearn some pretty big things so how do we get out of a crisis but I'll also probably want to ask you, how do we sustain this and how do we um, teach this to others uh, around us? Yeah, well, let's this, start with the crisis situation. Yeah, it's a huge question. I mean, the reality is, is um, it, it starts with insight. I know that might sound, uh, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but it does start with insight. I mean, we can't jump to the, how do we do this unless we understand what's been broken, unless we take a step back and look at ourselves in relationship to food and, and what we're doing. And so, so that's why I wrote Nourish, because it's all about insight, insight into why it needs to go together, insight about what is coming apart, and insight into how people put it together. Uh, it is an in, insight is the intervention. Insight is the intervention, because ultimately, I believe that every one of us has the capacity and has the instincts and emotions to take care of somebody. This was born a long time ago in us. I had my 18-month-old nephew on my lap. 
and was taking care of him over Christmas. And I was feeding him an apple and he would take that apple piece and then feed it back to me. He's 18 months. He has very few words, but what does he have? He already has these innate instincts to take care of somebody through food and me through food to him. And so we have this already inside of us. It's about connecting back into those instincts and emotions that have become uh, disconnected and having a hard look at ourselves. There is not one person, I think you could say, in North America who hasn't been affected by a food culture that does not serve us well. Um, You know, when I talk to pediatricians, eating disorder specialists, nutritionists, dietitians, I heard the same thing over and over again. Our relationship with food isn't a bad way. It isn't a crisis situation. Um, And so part of that is to have insight into that and not in a way that's just about what food you eat. That's where the conversation always goes. It's back to what you eat. Is it important? Of course it is. Of course it's important. It's important not only for our bodies, but for the planet. But again, we have to come back to the conversation and say, well, how do we make that decision? How do we show up around food? What are our intentions, our desires? What is a climate that we set at the table? What do we do about a child who's resistant? Uh, What is our best foot forward? So insight is the intervention. We have to think differently about our relationship with food. And from that place, when we have insight, then the interventions fall out from it. You won't find yourself with that knee-jerk reaction to push my daughter. I never gave consequences and threats because I'm a developmentalist and that has never been part of my repertoire. But when I realized I was pushing her and the more I was pushing her, left room, left no room for her to have an agenda. I wasn't relying on relationship. I backed up. I knew it was a problem. I instinctively said, this needs to stop. I need to find another way through. So what did I do? I backed off, let her have some more autonomy. I made mealtimes more pleasurable. How do I do that? Well, I can't give you instructions for that. That's inside of you to figure out. You've got to figure out that dance with your child. But yes, should it be more pleasurable? Should there be more less resistance? Yes, of course. So insight is the intervention. From insight flows the implementation and what we do. Um, and and that that is the trajectory. To, to go right away to how to shortchanges the insight and the intuition inside every adult. It... Um, is disrespectful to the relationship between a child and an adult and that dance that they must figure out. This is not just a dance for today. It's a dance about caretaking for the long term. So how to's can't be disconnected from that insight. And once you get in, once you get the insight, then, then it does flow. Um, but it's not a prescription. And I think, uh, this is one thing that this, that my work is not about is telling parents exactly how you have to do these things. Of course, there's strategies, of course, there's ideas, of course, there's stories and examples. Uh, and there's, you know, uh, parents who are doing this despite great challenges, um, metabolic metabolic issues in their children, food allergies, anaphylaxis. There's just serious issues and stress and alarm in a parent when it comes to this, but we're doing it. We're doing it. I love that you're doing it. And I'm so grateful for that work. Um, I wonder how often you encounter this in your practice that not only the issues arise in the feeding someone else, you know, in the act of feeding a child in particular, um, but how these beliefs we have around food and these these issues are anchored in our own personal relationship to food and how we care for ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, there's something that shifts when you become a parent and you realize you have to be responsible for so, for feeding someone else. It's like people are like, oh, I think I have to learn how to cook. I can't just grab things. I have to. <laughs> it's this. And what do I want to feed them? And then they just go through this whole transformation when you become a parent and where they might not cook for themselves, they'll cook for other people. So it's quite interesting that. Um, just going back to what your, your question was. Well, I guess I, I think my personal observation is that oh, and, so and many of us have such messed up relationship with food, even before you bring in another person. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it does, it, I think it gets, you know, it does get enacted in the home, but it, 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 the focus is so much on the child. And so when people come in to see me, the focus is on what's not working with the child. And usually as a developmentalist and relational uh, focused, they're focused on behavior. I need to change this behavior. This isn't working. The child's struggling at school. We're having temper tantrums at home, resistance, opposition, the child's bossy, commanding, demanding. Oh, and then when I do um, an assessment, they're not eating from me either. And this is what happens. And these are the food battles. So people don't often come and see me as the food person. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. So for them, if I have a food issue, I go to a nutritionist or those kind of people, right? Which are help me out. But the reality is, is that what oftentimes is also creating some of the food issues is the relational piece because food issues can create relational issues and relational issues can create food issues. They're not disconnected from each other. And so in my assessment, I'll always say, okay, so to help me understand what's going around food. And it is through that lens of feeding and eating and that dance, it becomes a template to understand often how, how adult and child are moving together. But people don't come in and say, often, I've got a food issue I want you to fix. They say, I've got a relational issue. And look at all the ways it's showing up in the child's life. And that's, oh, that's my favorite thing to do because it's all, they're all connected together. It's like we treat a food issue over here. We treat an anxiety issue over here. We treat a learning issue over here. That's not what I do. I put all the pieces together and say, this is the core. Let's fix this piece here. Let's work on this piece here. Uh, everybody gets stuck. Today, raising a child is an act of great courage. <laughs> and uh, yes. Let's turn that around. And there's a lot of myths and misperceptions. There's a lot of blind sages that give advice to parents about parenting. Um, and so, yeah, we're getting we're getting a little lost sometimes and not because we don't have good intentions, but because oftentimes we're lost to ourselves, and we're lost following blind sages that um, are, are leading us down a bit of a, a, a path here that doesn't work. You're taking me on this path. I have to ask you this. What's the worst advice that we could be following when we are struggling with food in one way or another at home? Well, we just put our kids in the lead. We just put our kids in the lead far too often. What do you eat? Are you hungry? Let me make you this. Or um, I don't know what to do. Or just any any way that we communicate to a child that we don't take the lead uh, with around food. Uh, this is our responsibility. You know, Ellen Satter's division of responsibility is a wonderful um, script to follow, you know, in terms of we're responsible for what and when, and the child is responsible for how much and, and you know, their tastes and that evolution as, a, as an eater. Um, but we we must absolutely take the lead. But I think we so unconsciously ask our children far too many questions 
not just around food, but around a lot of things in North America. And it is out of this um, myth and misperception that we create independence, we create these vibrant, you know, children who can become adults and go and take on the world by putting them in charge of their life early as much as we can. And what it does is it oftentimes creates insecurity, uh, it can create anxiety, and it can create dominance issues in our kids, which then shows up around food. And so we ask far too much of our children in terms of instructions. It's like we, we look to them and say, okay, well, they must be the manual we need inside of them. No, take the lead, take the lead. You know, I'll take care of you. Uh, what's for dinner, food, you know, make sure you're feeding in a way, family style. You've got food on the table that you know that they like that fits with your, uh, your family and, and your belief system and your culture, whatever it is that guides you and take the lead, take the lead, take care of them generously. But yeah, we put our children far too much in charge around things that they were never meant to be in charge of because they are so close to survival. You have to rest in the care of your adults, count on them, trust on them to take care of you so that that alarm and hypervigilance goes down and the brain can focus on paying attention to new and novel things, to pay attention to learning, to hear the stories and to, uh, to digest and absorb, um, you know, what's in their environment, not just food wise, but emotions and, um, and psychologically the messages of connection. I really appreciate you saying that and going back to that division of responsibility when it comes to food, how does that evolve as the child ages? Um, at what stages do we see children taking more responsibility for themselves? And I'm sure that's in line with the rest of development, but tell yeah. us, tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do see that children have an appetite for autonomy, especially, well, the, you know, the three-year-old, I do it myself. <laughs> to the 13-year-old, I am going to do it myself. Um, you know, to the 23-year-old who should be doing it by themselves, right? At least you hope, and that's not always the case, but um, that would be the the uh, sort of developmental trajectory. So I think, you know, the, the key thing is, is that we don't want to put our children in charge too soon. We don't want to um, become retired um, too soon. But do our children become eaters and become more competent at feeding themselves? Yes. You know, I worried when my children, you know, left home and I, we had done so much cooking and, and, you know, preparing food for them and they were involved in it from doing some of the gardening and, and preparing some, you know, meals with us and stuff. But as they got busy in high school, I just really took care of them because they focused a lot on their studies. And I worried about that transition to taking care of themselves. And, um, but it, it just naturally unfolded as, because they were mature, because they feel responsible for taking care of themselves. Uh, they just naturally are figuring it out and growing into this, uh, you know, from their high school into their university years. But, um, you know, teenagers are harder to, to hold on to. Um, they don't eat with us as much. And sometimes, you know, you have single parents, you've got uh, parents who work shift work, and sometimes kids have to be a bit more responsible. Um, but we can prepare the path. I've left this for you. This is what's there. Or there's leftovers. And, you know, we can also take care of them, even if we can't be there physically to cook it. That, those are all signs of dependence and caring. I've made uh, preparations here for you um, to, to make sure that you are, you're taken care of, even if I'm not here. Still being a bit of the project manager yeah. in general while giving them maybe age-appropriate yeah, exactly. responsibilities yeah. until they fly on their own and, yeah. and, and some, pick it all up. 
Exactly. And some kids, I mean, I've had some kids in my practice who are just like, they just like to bake and they just take over the kitchen and they're just bakers. And I've got some kids who are getting into all sorts of, you know, different types of recipes and really, you know, likes to cook for the family. And this is a passion. This is like a way of expression for them. For them, it is play. I mean, I wouldn't say to them, well, hold on, you're not, you know, <laughs> student yet. I'd be like, hey, kitchen's yours. I'll help you out here. If this is an expression of the child somehow, uh, then yeah, go for it. There's, there's again, no one prescription here, but the idea of you're responsible for feeding yourself is, is a bit of a, oh, it just makes, it's just such a lonely message, isn't it? Go take care of yourself. It's just, it makes me sad. Do you have some suggestions about how this may apply also between adults in a relationship where I think it's quite typical that mm -hmm. one member of the household, often the mom, often the wife or mm -hmm. the female spouse in one way or another, but not always. I think there's been a lot of change in the last couple of decades in this regard, but there's often someone who's more likely than not in charge of caring for others as far as food is concerned. Mm -hmm. How does some of that show up in relationships? And um, do you have any insight about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that what I did find in my research is certainly that there is people were having, without a clear division of responsibility, and it did still fall oftentimes to female, um, but you could have um, a, a gay female couple who would still, there'd be one that would still take the lead on matters is that there is a sense of negotiating the division of responsibility to some degree. And that was really around work and other responsibilities and competing things. And like, okay, well, how are we going to work together? If there was that sense of togetherness, how do we work together to, to make sure that we have our, our healthy meals on the table and, and so on and so forth. So people shared, I found the tasks that were in my study. I don't think that's true for everybody, but people volunteered for my study. And so someone might do the shopping or the prep or the cleanup. Um, other people did the cooking and, you know, meal preparation, but there was a sense of we've got to work together here. If it was single parenting, they might rely on their kids for some of that as well, or meals might be simple, or they might rely on outside uh, food services or what might, you know, takeouts and stuff like that. Um, so it was, it really centered around being flexible and looking at how you get it done in the context of your life. And I, I thought that was so interesting that there isn't this one sense of one person doing it all. It's, it's a bit of a, the added complexity of having to do that. <laughs> Are you going to make it? Am I going to make it? Are you picking this up? Can you pick it up? There's a whole bunch of communication that happens around eating now that I'm not sure if one person was solely responsible for it. I don't think you'd see that kind of communication uh, for it. So that's a good thing. I think it adds complexity. I think it's just, it's the way we've developed to survive. And, um, you know, and, and I do think that people take, there's also this, this everyday eating, and then there's also celebrations and feasts. And that's where you see much more rituals and practices. Well, oh, you know, so-and-so's got to make this special recipe and we need this person's special dish over here and only they can provide it. And if you dare change it, you know, um, and you Watch don't. Out. 
yeah, you know, you don't bring your whatever, you know, sweet potato dish or whatever it is. Someone's like, oh, well, yeah, well, it's just not Thanksgiving without the sweet potatoes, you know, (laughs) and only they can bring it. And so I I think we do have our own little signature things here, which, again, has a whole other level of nourishment and history. And as soon as you, 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 if it's associated with positive things, you know, there's a sense of celebration and a feast and a gift uh, when we can show up with that kind of consistency. So I think there's survival strategies for weekdays. And then there's a whole set of other practices uh, outside of, uh, you know, that. Survival cooking is everything that I'm about anyway. (laughs) It's a big part of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I personally, I think it's way more important that many people make it be. I think we've come to a place where um, food has been outsourced and devalued as a essentially just a commercial activity in so many ways. But as you say, there's such a depth of emotions and feelings and important connections that come with food. And it's such a beautiful tool, if I can even put it that way, that we can leverage in our relationships with each other to stay connected mm-hmm. instead of just farm it out to others. And as you say, it's nice to have a you know a special Friday night sushi date or whatever it is that makes you feel taken care of that's one thing um i feel i feel sad when i think of all the outsourcing that's happening to people who frankly don't care very much about nourishing you you know and there's lots of i think there's um nice family restaurants where people really care and there's an ethics even of of feeding others with the best possible food but that is, let's be realistic, not what constitutes the bulk of the kind of food that people are getting when they're doing takeout and things mm-hmm. like that. So how can we put the love back in the food? Is mm-hmm. It's a work that we got to do every day, but it's worth it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can look whatever it looks like for us. Like, you know, again, in the context of our lives, what I got down to, you know, after I did the research, actually what I came down to when you strip out, when you strip out the food, what it really comes down to at the end of the day is an invitation for dependence. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be just around food. Feeding someone is an invitation for dependence and it's a vulnerable, it's a vulnerable act to rest in someone's care to some, in something that is life sustaining and could hurt you is, um, you know, it, it's an act of vulnerability. I think about that, you know, when I'm going away on vacation and I'm thinking about, you know, where I may or may not eat and who's taking care of me and what bugs I might get or not, or, you know, I think, I think a lot about that. And, and because I'm placing my hands into someone else's care. When you get on a plane, when you get in a taxi, I'm placing my hands in someone else's care. And so it's a vulnerable act and we can't lose sight of that. And so when we show up, in a very generous way and to instill trust it is actually an act of dependence. We see it as an act of fueling. We see it as, you know, the fast food, the nutritional break, the uh, body break, the food is fuel. We're missing a, a much bigger conversation. This is an act of dependence. It's meant to be an act of dependence. Kids are picky and don't eat just from anybody because they don't trust them. Um, they sometimes do it with us because they're becoming an eater. 
Um, they're trying to figure out this world of food. Um, but generally, children won't eat from strangers, uh, won't take things into their mouth. It would feel alarming if the instincts are pointing you in the right direction, unless that person has been sanctioned by your adults. Um, and so, again, what we're really talking about at the end of the day is how do you give someone a good invitation to depend upon you? And food, the messenger and the medium. You are starting to offer more guidance in this area. You're starting a new course um, that uh, will be launching in April on uh, a topic very closely related. I would like you to tell me more about it. Yeah. So the book really is to deal with the insight, the what and the why, and gets into some of the how. But what I realized after writing that and talking to people and presenting on it is I really need to push into the how. So when we have the insight, how then do we use this to come up with rituals, to really examine our relationships, to really take a snapshot of the emotions that are showing up around the table? How can I help people to use the insight they have to understand what's happening in the context of their own life? Um, so that's what the book, that's what the, the course is going to be about, is going to take that insight and push it into practice. And it is called Gather to Eat, right? Yeah. Oh, that is so beautiful. So how um, how can people connect with you to make sure not to miss out when the book uh, when the course starts and um, and just keep on learning from your beautiful wisdom about food as as a relationship? Thank you. Um, my newsletter is a good source. The, always the first things come out to my newsletter community. Um, I would say I have a Substack called Gather to Eat. That would be another. Oh. Uh, way Good. to follow. Um, but my, my uh, website and there is a wait list for gather to eat. So all the information will go first out to the people on the wait list uh, for the course. So you can sign up through my website. And the website is, I'll put it in the show notes, but what is it? McNamara.ca. Wonderful. Is it open just to Canadians or can anybody sign up? International. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. I am so grateful for your work, bringing this insight to the surface and reminding us that food is love um, is part of love it's not the only thing but certainly it is part of this whole web of attachment that we have with each other in those relationships thank you so much for this work and i encourage everyone to read your book um nourished it is uh, it came out in 2023 i will put a link in the show notes as well so that people can get it as an ebook or a paper copy and i very much look forward to um, seeing your course come out and having so many more people discover their the depth and the richness of their connections through food and working with you thank you deborah thank you so much for having me bridget it's been a delight <laughs>